this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Courtney Freer, a research fellow at the London School of Economics Middle East program and the author of Rentier Islamism, The Influence of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gulf Monarchies, published by Oxford University Press. Courtney, the Gulf ruling states, clearly some feel more threatened than others, but what sort of continuing threat does the Muslim Brotherhood ideology pose for these ruling families? It's a good question, because really when you look at the Gulf versus compare it to the the rhetoric that's coming out of some of these Gulf states, you see that the Brotherhood only is organized even in two states. Only in Bahrain and Kuwait does it have the capacity to contest elections. And in those states, it hasn't had uh, much power in parliament. It hasn't had more than about five or six seats. And so it's it's not something, it's not an entity that, that kind of threatens to overthrow the government in the same way that um, ruling families of, for instance, the Emirates seem to, to portray it. Um, I think that, that really part of the issue is that when you have these states which provide quite handsomely for their citizens, which are pretty capable in terms of providing um, jobs, providing education, health care, etc., the, the room for political contestation is not in the economic sphere, but rather in, in the ideological. Um, and because the, the Muslim Brotherhood perpetuates this ideology that Islam should be a part of every part of, uh, of every aspect of people's lives, that's something that's harder to combat. Um, it's harder to combat um, for one, because uh, no ruler, especially in the Gulf, wants to come off as anti-religion or as too secular, because that is that does threaten to alienate citizens. But also because I think that in these states where you see modernization accompanied with a great deal of secularization and westernization, Islamism, or at least Islam even, can be seen as a, or practicing Islam in a certain way, can be seen as a way of uh, reasserting national identity. So Islamism can be conflated with nationalism, I think, in certain cases, especially in cases where you have states with vast um, expatriate majorities, often expats who are not Muslims. And so there's this idea that by, by reasserting Islamic values, that's a way to protect kind of local values and local identity. And so I think that this is a critique that ruling families across the Gulf are very sensitive to. Um, and then you add in the, the, the factor that, and this is true across the Middle East, the Brotherhood and other religious groups have the advantage of being able to gather in um, social settings, in mosques, in places which the state is unlikely or unable to uh, completely shut down. Yes, uh, you make an interesting point because all of these Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia accepted, have very large migrant populations and small uh, indigenous populations. Exactly. And and I think that does definitely has a, a plays into political dynamics. And you see, especially now with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, a lot of language about, you know, nationals versus expats. So this is clearly something that's on on people's minds. And I think this is something that uh, this kind of divide is something that can be capitalized upon with kind of Islamist rhetoric. Now, Mohammed bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi crown prince and de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates, he has a particular, what can I say, fear, fear and loathing, uh, it seems, for the Brotherhood. Why is that? I, I've given this a lot of thought because his, the, the Emirati reaction to the, the Muslim Brotherhood has been so extreme, especially relative to the amount of power that the Brotherhood ever held in the Emirates. Um, it was mainly a social organization. Some of its members were involved in the 2011 uh, petition to expand the powers of the elected uh, or partially elected Federal National Council. But still, it's not a, a scary kind of political organization that's threatening or has even talked about overthrowing the government. Um, 
I think for Mohammed bin Zayed, there is some evidence, and I, I believe Robert Worth talked about this in his New York Times uh, magazine profile, that Mohammed bin Zayed has this very personal, has had a very bad personal experience with tutors uh, during his youth who were from the Muslim Brotherhood and whom he claimed tried to convert him. And so there's this idea that this is a very personal, visceral dislike and distrust. I also think that that Mohammed bin Zayed did... So when I say that the Muslim Brotherhood isn't powerful in the Emirates, I don't mean to say that it's not powerful uh, in any sphere. So when Mohammed bin Zayed was growing up, the Brotherhood did have a lot of power in the education sector in terms of in terms of creating curricula, and so in that way managed to influence the way people thought. And I think that Mohammed bin Zayed thought, saw that as very dangerous, um, and I think that colored his way of thinking and made him fear that the Brotherhood could potentially take over. And then the 2011 was, of course, his worst nightmare to see Islamists elected in in Egypt and in Tunisia, I mean, after after the Arab Spring. That said, I mean, I think he also, I, whether he believes this or not, one line that he's always uh, parroted back is, is this idea that the Brotherhood is on a continuum with uh, violent jihadi organizations. And I believe it was the Emirati foreign minister who called the Brotherhood the gateway drug to um, ISIS, essentially. And so I think there is this idea that there, there's a lack of nuance when you look at Islamists um, in, in Mohammed bin Zayed's view, and that all Islamists are dangerous because they, they can become quite extreme and uh, and violent. And so I think that's something that has driven a lot of his decision making, as well as, um, and this is even back in 2007, in a wire that was revealed by WikiLeaks, Mohammed bin Zayed said that if there were elections tomorrow, the Brotherhood would win. And I don't know why he thought that, because the that I mean, A, there are not elections, and B, uh, they, they were never super politically organized. But I think he did have this sense that the, the criticisms that the Muslim Brotherhood launched against the Emirati regime, which are often about its secularity and about the unequal distribution of wealth among all of the Emirates, because a lot of the followers of the Brotherhood came from the Northern Emirates. I think he saw that this this kind of criticism could gather popularity. Um, and so he's been very uh, cautious. And you add to that his whatever personal experience he had, I think this, this accounts for this quite extreme reaction against the Brotherhood. And, and you make an interesting point there. The Northern Emirates have not shared in the huge wealth that uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Sharjah have uh, really they they have a different uh, experience, don't they? Exactly, and and not only in terms of not being wealthy and not having hydrocarbon resources, but also being pretty politically peripheral. Um, in in all of the governing bodies of the Emirates, Ras Al Khaimah doesn't doesn't figure as prominently as as Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Sharjah, um, and so this idea that the Brotherhood could somehow overthrow the government from a politically marginal and economically marginal emirate is all the more nonsensical, in my view. Now, the, the feud with Qatar, which began in June 2017, involved Saudi Arabia, of course, Bahrain, and and Egypt, but primarily uh, launched by Mohammed bin Zayed. Do what? extent do you think it was driven by his obsession about the brotherhood so i think my, my thoughts on this have changed because i think at first a lot of the, it's interesting a lot of the language was about qatar's relationship with iran um, and that initial hacking of the qatar news agency 
um, featured a, a statement from Sheikh Tamim essentially praising Iran. I forget the exact um, wording, but there was a lot of talk about that. And then as time has gone by, and as you saw the, the demands that were made of Qatar, they had to do primarily with its uh, perceived support of Islamism, its relationship with Turkey, which is seen as bolstering that support for Islamism, and its uh, housing of Al Jazeera, which is seen uh, by many as kind of this Islamist mouthpiece. And so I think that you can definitely argue that Islamism played in, in and, and Qatar's relationship with it certainly played into decision making. Um, I think that Qatar really did separate itself quite self-consciously from its neighbors during the Arab Spring in, in its support for democratically elected leaderships, but then also for certain Islamist groups throughout the region. And I think this angered, um, I think I think the, the Emiratis in particular, because they're vying for more of a similar space. These are both small states, which are, uh, I have to have to use the phrase, um, punching above their weights, uh, their weight at least once. Um, but, uh, but basically, these are small states trying to assert themselves, and Qatar did it in a very different way from, from the way the Emiratis did. And I think at the end of last year, we heard that there were some talks happening between the Qataris and the Saudis about potentially ending this rift. And apparently, it was the Emiratis who were not amenable to that discussion. And I think this largely has to do with this ideological stance, really, against how the Muslim Brotherhood has conducted its foreign policy. But do you, do you think it's, it's fair in, in some sense to say that Qatar is a, it served as a, as a sort of, a, it served as a, a kind of Muslim Brotherhood enclave in, in the Gulf? I mean, I think, I think if anywhere is a Muslim Brotherhood enclave, even for, for Gulfies, it would be um, Istanbul um, rather than, than Doha. But I do think it, it's fair to say that Qatar has taken in a, a lot of exiles. And I think a lot of times they're, they're painted with this broad brush as being all members of the Muslim Brotherhood, when in fact, there are a lot of people in Qatar who, have, who are either Islamists, but not members of the Brotherhood, or are not Islamists at all. So you have... I mean, you have um, kind of vaguely, you have Islamists like, you have people like Khaled Michel, you have the Taliban, you have Sheikh Karadawi, you have people like this who are put into this kind of broad Islamist camp. But then you also have people like a lot of Saddam Hussein's family, um, Azmi Bashara, the, the Indian artist MF Hussein, people who are not at all Islamists, but yet whom the Qataris have, have taken in. And I think there is this idea of, about Qatar being... Um, the Kaaba of the dispossessed, and this is something that has been talked about in, in Qatari history, that essentially it provides refuge for people seeking it. And that has often been members of the Brotherhood, it's been members of other Islamist groups, it's been, you know, Baathists, all kinds of people. And so I don't think it's, I think it's a bit simplistic to say it's it's only a haven really for the Muslim Brotherhood, but, but rather for a lot of people. And I think that also Qatar has seen that, uh, rather than, than seeing Islamism as something potentially dangerous, it's seen that it is influential and that by uh, hosting certain Islamist figures, Qatar can project its power more broadly. And so by hosting things like Islam Web, Islam Online, Qatar is able to project itself throughout the Muslim world um, rather than just in the Gulf. And that's a very different tactic to what its neighbors have, have done. And that projection does present a challenge then to Mohammed bin Zayed, who, who has himself very clear uh, objectives. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think he's been projecting more this idea of, and this is something that Mohammed bin Salman also talks about, moderate Islam, this notion which, which I think is essentially apolitical Islam, um, an Islam that is, is separated from how you, how you vote, essentially, or what you think about government. And that's something that, that they've been talking about quite a lot in recent years, I think, to counter the Qatari, the Qatari, um, not embrace, but the, the, the lack of fear on the Qatari side of, of Islamists, really. Now, now, looking more broadly at the MENA region, and again, I have to come back to Mohammed bin Zayed, 
Are his foreign policy initiatives primarily driven by this antipathy to the Brotherhood? I'm, I'm thinking here of the support for Sisi, the Egyptian president, and, and also for the Libyan uh, warlord Haftar. Yeah, I mean, and, and also even looking at uh, Emirati policies in Sudan um, and in Yemen, you see a, a, a vehement uh, disapproval of it and, and refusal to cooperate with uh, people linked to the Muslim Brotherhood or Isla- or kind of certain Islamist movements. And so I think you could actually argue that Emirati foreign policy is much more uh, ideologically consistent than Qatari foreign policy, because it seems that over and over again, the Emiratis will refuse to engage in particular with um, figures or movements that are seen to be linked with the Muslim Brotherhood. Whereas Qatar um, has has backed Islamist movements of varying ideological strands. And so it's, it's l- less consistent in that way. So I think if anyone has this ideological foreign policy, it's actually the Emiratis, but it's just a very kind of secular ideological um, policy. And also this promotion of security and stability above all else. And I think that the Emiratis see uh, Islamists as agents of insecurity and instability in the region and so are willing to back pretty much anyone anyone else. But but do you not think that particularly with Haftar that they could be backing not just the wrong horse but but a dangerous horse? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I this is definitely a danger and I and I don't know the extent to which a lot of these foreign policies are are formulated, I mean, how they're formulated from a lot of what I know about policymaking in the Gulf, a lot of this is personalistic. And so these decisions may be made based on personal connections. And so that uh, that means that oftentimes we'll see these foreign policies, which don't to us make make a ton of sense and, and are potentially quite dangerous. How resilient do you think that the, the Brotherhood is in, in the MENA region? Do, do you think they're basically down for the count or, or- can they uh, bounce back? Because they are have shown great resilience in the past, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think I'm I'm always hesitant to say that um, that the the Muslim Brotherhood is completely down for the counter. That we're in this post-Islamist world, largely because we are we are still talking about them, and also because they have um, they have in the past been driven underground and have come out okay. I think that one of the ways in which this is different is there has been kind of a, a, a sting to the brand of, of the Muslim Brotherhood in particular. I'd say especially post-2013, there's been you know the, the banning of the Brotherhood, uh, the dubbing it as a terrorist organization in many countries um, throughout the Middle East. And so there is this idea that the brand of the Muslim Brotherhood itself has suffered. And so you see a lot of this rebranding in terms of Ghanoushi, um, for instance, talking about Nahda being um, Muslim Democrats. So this is kind of repackaging of how the Muslim Brotherhood sees itself in order to be more palatable and to separate itself from some of the baggage, um, the historical baggage uh, affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, that said, I mean, it's it's really difficult to defeat an ideology, especially an ideology that's resonated for almost 100 years. Um, and I think I think especially in places like the Gulf, where the Brotherhood hasn't had to provide anything really tangibly in the same way that it has in places like Egypt or Jordan, there's more of a, a chance of its survival because it is mainly an ideological source of inspiration rather than a political party or, or a social welfare network. So it's easier for it to survive underground. And as you say, uh, an ideology based in religion, in Islam, uh, rooted in Islam. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, the majority of the population is, is Sunni Sunni Muslims, so it will have some resonance. Now, in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis and the economic crisis, the, the, the looming economic crisis with the crash in the price of oil, uh, 
Do you see a renewed role for political Islam, if not the Brotherhood, then, then some other version? Um, I think potentially. I mean, when it comes to economic challenges, the Brotherhood has always been criticized, I think, the most on its it's basically um, perpetuation of, of Islam as the solution as an economic policy. So there's always been a lot of criticism of, of the Brotherhood in terms of not having great economic policies. But beyond that, I mean, I think at any time of of uh, crisis, uh, ideologies based in faith are become more attractive. Um, and so you see people looking towards religious leaders, I think, and also looking towards some kind of unity, uh, this idea that that it, you know that borders don't matter so much when you have a pandemic that's attacking everyone, um, regardless of of uh, nationality and socioeconomic status uh, and uh, religion. And so I think that that really this idea that that it could be Islamism provides this kind of cross border unification is is something that could could take hold potentially. But then I mean, how much power does that really have uh, in the long term, and and what kind of solutions? Can that offer? I'm I'm less sure about, but I think in terms of providing kind of um, ideological, political, social inspiration and, and support, um, certainly I think there's there is uh, space for for growth there. And do you think the fact that it has been driven underground, Muslim Brother declared a, a terrorist organization, as you said in many countries, do you think that actually helps it to survive? Um, interesting. I think I think perhaps i mean the the brotherhood has experience with this in the past so if it were another organization that hadn't had the experience of of surviving underground i would be more likely to say that they they can't survive it and so it it also does kind of give them um credibility in the sense that these are organizations that you know have been victimized by certain governments a lot of their members are in prison around the the middle east really and so i think that that does help them help them boost themselves as the real deal, as members of the opposition who are going to fight for, in particular, kind of more uh, political, part- popular political participation across the region. So I think it is, it is something of, of giving them a bit of street cred um, as mem- card-carrying members of the opposition who have suffered. Finally, Courtney, what do you think the West response should be if, if political Islam reasserts itself in the in the MENA region? I, th- I think it's always been important to engage with. Um, members of the Islamist community. I think uh, most actors in the Islamist community are are not violent. And so I think recognizing that fact is quite important and and going beyond this idea of conflating uh, the Muslim Brotherhood with ISIS, with, you know, kind of putting them all on this same spectrum because they're all quite different movements. What I tell a lot of my uh, friends back home is to think about the Brotherhood more as the, the Tea Party than as ISIS. And so it's this idea that religious politics um, have a hold really throughout the the world, and so there's there's no reason to not engage with these organizations, um, particularly because they are popular in certain areas. And so I think engagement is really important, and understanding also where they stand and what their what their goals are and what their agendas are beyond just talking to members of the government who have a very vested interest in portraying them in a, in a certain light. I mean, certainly dubbing anyone a terrorist is a very surefire way of getting support for cracking down on them. And so I think engaging and, and understanding what the agendas are that drive these groups is very important. I, I like the Tea Party analogy, uh, but I, that's quite nuanced. And I'm wondering, given the current occupant of the White House, whether that sort of nuance is, uh, is, is rather lost. <laughs> Courtney, thanks very much. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Courtney Freer, 
a research fellow at the London School of Economics Middle East program and the author of Rentier Islamism, The Influence of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gulf Monarchies. It's published by Oxford University Press. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.